This is the Thorn Podcast, Performance Edition, the show that navigates the complex world of sports science and explores the latest research on diet, nutritional supplements, and the human body. I'm Joel Totoro, Director of Sports Science at Thorn. As a reminder, statements in this podcast have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Any products mentioned are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Thorn Podcast Performance Edition. Joining me today is Wes Barnett, a two-time Olympic in weightlifting, former director of international games at the United States Olympic Committee, and currently our vice president for business development at Thorn. Wes, welcome to the pod. How's it going? Great, Joel. Thank you for having me. Always excited to be on and, and talk performance. Yeah, I mean, I think there's so much we could talk about, and we've had so many conversations over the years, but I want to focus a little bit today about your, you know, with the Olympics coming up, both your career as a as an athlete, but also kind of how you see the, the games evolve and looking at it as an administrator uh, as you were for so many years. But you had such a unique career. Can you give our listeners a little bit of your journey? Sure. So, uh, you know, I began the, the sport of weightlifting at about age 12. It just was something that I got hooked on and uh, continued for, gosh, well over half my life. So we just went after it. And I went from a, a lifestyle of where I was training, you know, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday once a day uh, to where we uh, went into the meat grinder where we trained uh, six days a week, twice a day. So it was quite a baptism by fire. I was one of the fortunate athletes who my performance just soared from there and um, stuck with it for about the next decade um, after that uh, until uh, I didn't make the team in 2000. I made 92 in Barcelona, 96 in Atlanta, did not make the team in, in 2000 for Sydney and went on with my career. Great. So you competed at a, as a drug-free athlete in a time we now know had significant struggles with performance-enhancing drugs. What did that feel like at the time, and how did it shape your post-Olympic career? Well, you know, that's a big question because, you know, it was something that those of us that were participating, we knew right from the beginning uh, what we were up against. And it's a, it's a little bit like some days it, it was like slamming your hand in a car door o- over and over again, and, you're, and you ask yourself, why do you keep doing this when, when you know the playing field is unlevel, you know that things are unfair, but ultimately it just kind of comes down to the personal decisions that you make and the fact that you want to control the things that, that you can control and to be able to look your family, your friends in the eye, kids that were, were looking up to you or that looked up to you and tell them that, yeah, I, I really did do things the right way. It really is true that if you work hard if you take care of those little things, you can achieve these things. Now, I never went on to Olympic prominence by, by winning a medal. My highest finish was sixth. But for me, that was like a gold medal. I knew what I was up against. Your competitors could be off a little bit because of what they were doing, but you always had to be at your best if you had any chance of, of being competitive. So that took its toll and was a bit frustrating. But uh, the way that it shaped me for the future was... I've always been this kind of staunch advocate for clean sport. When I was working at the USOPC, athletes were testing positive from contaminated supplements. So they were uh, in a similar situation like I was when I was competing. I, I knew that I needed some additional support outside of the food that I was eating. So I relied on supplements. They're relying on supplements. And unfortunately, not all companies are created equally. And there were times where athletes were not trying to cheat, 
but were taking supplements to, to help support their training and, and their performances and ended up with a positive drug test. And I really felt that this was an injustice for them and, and basically sought to find a solution uh, where they could have peace of mind knowing that what they were putting into their body was not going to give them a positive drug test. So that was a crusade that I went on for uh, about a decade, which ultimately landed me at Thorne. So I think you, you talked a little bit about, there's obviously the intentional doping, which impacts the integrity of the games and so many other things, but I don't think people realize how high the risk of an accidental exposure is. But more importantly, can you talk about what a competition ban actually means to an athlete? Yeah. So a competition ban is, in some cases, it's like a death sentence. Let's set aside for a second just the internal turmoil and embarrassment that occurs where now people are pointing fingers at you and, and, and labeling you uh, a cheater when obviously that was, that was not what your intention was. But at the same time, you know, I've always been this believer in, in strict liability, meaning if you put it in your body, then you're responsible for it. And to a large extent, that's the way the system works. I mean, you are responsible for what you put in your body. You're responsible for doing the homework. And ultimately, you are responsible if you come back with a positive drug test or an adverse analytical finding, to use the, uh, the technical terms. But it turns your life upside down, depending on what the substance was. So let's say if it was a cold medicine, okay, it's not going to be as severe. But if it's something that is falling into that steroid class, now you're looking at a first offense of usually it's a minimum of two years. So when you think about being out of competition for that period of time, it's pretty devastating. And some people continue their training and try to kind of stay in the sport. And we've seen examples of that and where, where athletes have been successful, but it really turns your life upside down, not only from a competitive standpoint, but just from a public perception perspective, where no matter what you do, what you say, what evidence comes out in your favor, people always look at you and say, yeah, um, that that person was a cheater. They failed a drug test, and that's a uh, you know kind of a scarlet letter that is stamped on you forever, which is unfortunate. So we as fans get to watch the Olympics for a few weeks every four years, but the training and planning takes place for years. Can you talk a little bit about the logistical side of what goes into sending U.S. athletes to international games? Sure. So that was the second part of my life after I finished competing. I was fortunate enough to start working for the Olympic Committee and, and really get a behind the scenes look at, at what it takes. And even as close as I was to it, I had no idea what went on behind the scenes to make my experience what it was. So that when, when I landed in whatever country uh, the competition was at from the time I got on that plane to come home, all the logistical details that went into making it the best experience for me that it could be the best experience for the athletes. It could be where really all you needed to do was concentrate on your performance uh, and everything else was, was taken care of. So when I started working for the committee, I was in the, the, the on the performance side from day one, really getting to understand what it takes to make that happen. It's, it was really incredible and gave me a a whole new appreciation for the team behind the team, if you will, because we've always said the Olympics, it's not every four years. Um, and I know now it's, it's every two years with the summer and winter broken up, but it's something that's every day. And that's, 
that's really true for, for the athletes, but also for those uh, who, who serve as that team behind the team, whether you work for the committee or whether you work for one of the national governing bodies, weightlifting, taekwondo, wrestling, judo, or whoever. So th there really is a ton of work that, that goes into it. And when you think about all of the logistics of getting people from their hometowns to a foreign country and back without any incident, it sounds easy, but when you're also providing medical services, when you're providing food services, when you're providing facilities for, for training and, and that sort of thing, it is a, a monumental effort. And interestingly enough, you're always planning with concurrent games, meaning you cannot wait. So let's use, just use the summer games as an example. You cannot wait to start planning for 2020 after the 2016 games are over. By, by then it's too late. You at least have to have a, you know, a seven year run up into planning for the next game. So, so the games continue to overlap. That means it's not just the games that are staring you in the face. It's the ones that are six, seven, eight years down the road as well. So you're doing all those simultaneously. And then you throw the winter games in there as well which kind of breaks things up. So now you have a summer games that's about to hit. Then you've got the winter games uh, coming two years after that. Then you have another summer games two years after that. So it's a continual cyclical process of, of planning and logistics that you find yourself on a lot of airplanes in a lot of foreign countries, uh, making a lot of deals to try and get the facilities that you need, secure the resources and, and services that you need so that when the athletes get there, the only thing they have to take care of is, is the competition. And a lot of people don't realize a lot of the challenges where you'll show up at a games and the, the village where the athletes live, it isn't finished yet, or they don't have the transportation system worked out yet. And you've got athletes coming in in a couple of weeks. So a lot of times what we did as, you know, as a staff is we, we weren't the complainers, right? And this is what I, what I loved about my job. We weren't the complainers that said, why isn't this done? Or why isn't that done? Or why isn't this better? What we would do is come in and, and we had a lot of respect as the United States and would say, how can we help? Knowing that the things that we needed to help with that would impact our athletes in a positive way, it was also gonna be beneficial to other athletes as well. And we didn't mind that because we wanted to be good partners with the organizing committee. But when you come into a situation and Let's say the rooms uh, aren't, aren't finished and they need painting or the beds put together or the dressers put together, whatever the case may be. And we have done it all, believe me. So a lot of fun. It's really rewarding, enriching and fulfilling to be able to do work that, you know, is, is in support of the athletes and the U.S. team. Yeah, there's there's so many variables to, to think about. And I had a, a very small version of this, but when I was in the NFL, we were looking at playing a game in, in Beijing one year before the Beijing Olympics. And uh, we had to eventually end up canceling it because little things we hadn't thought about until we went over there was the, you know, the ambulance is and the stretchers weren't big enough for 6'6", 300 pound athletes. You know, we were having trouble. Our medical docs weren't going to be allowed to carry uh, scalpels in their medical kit on board down to I was going to have to fill out, uh, you know, import export forms for frozen peanut butter and jelly, which I know we've joked about in the past, but it's just, there's so many facets that go into it. I think it's, it's mind boggling that, that it ever happens correctly. 
Yeah, it's really, you, you are amazed that it gets done, but you know what? It does. And it's really about the attitude that you use going in. Again, if you're in there complaining about things and and, and yelling at people, and I, I'll, I'll never forget this. We were, this wasn't an Olympics, but it was a Pan Am Games. And and the transportation system was was just terrible. There were no buses there when they were supposed to to take athletes to training. The buses, when they were there, the drivers didn't know where they were going because they were they were hired from other countries to come in and and drive buses, so they weren't familiar with the with the landscape and and the geography. So they would get lost and and drive around for hours where athletes are supposed to be at training or uh, or get to a competition. So they're showing up late. It was a complete and utter disaster. So we would get up at like five o'clock in the morning, go down to the transportation hall and say, okay, let us sit down. And, and we would start this the night before. So once everything was finished, you'd work until about midnight, one in the morning, you'd be back down there at five o'clock. What does tomorrow look like? Or what does today look like? We would help them because we had experience doing this. We would help them put together a transportation schedule that was really, really seamless. And they were just like, oh my gosh, this is incredible. And, and I'll never forget the comment. They said, even though you guys have the full right to yell and scream at us because everything is, is messed up, we really appreciate the fact that you guys of, of all the countries are the ones not yelling at us. You're the ones coming in and, and helping us find a solution. And they're so appreciative of that. And now we're doing it for selfish reasons uh, as well, because, you know, we want our athletes to, to have a great experience and perform well. But that whole kind of international relationship that we try to, you know, deploy whenever we go into another country, it's something that's, that's very, very critical. And then, uh, lo and behold, when you need something and you have to go to these people uh, to, to get something, guess what? They are more apt to bend over backwards to make something happen for you because of the way that you treated them. So it's really just about, you know, treating people great. It's amazing how far being a good person will get you, right? You got it. So we're going to final question before we take a break and then get into some questions from our listeners. You as an athlete, you know, you competed in the sport when it was, you know, maybe heart rates and whey protein was the cutting edge. Uh, and then a your time working with the performance committee uh, at the Olympic Training Center all the way through now. And we've got, you know, every wearable in the world, personalized individual blood work and supplements. What have you kind of seen the biggest kind of impacts in the sport, in the sports science area? And what are you looking forward to in the future? Yeah, well, that's a, that's a great question and a big one, too, because, I mean, obviously, the technology changes every day. Things that provide so much useful data for you to be able to train better, to prepare better, to recover better. And I think that's great. And I think that what happens is with all of these uh, bells and whistles, a lot of it, Joel, really comes down to continuing to take care of the basics. I think so many times that is lost on coaches, on athletes as well, where they don't take care of the basics. Everybody's looking for the quick fix, the magic bullet, the thing that's going to kind of propel me to the next level. There are those things that exist, but if you're not taking care of the basic foundational things and doing those at a very high level, the bells and whistles aren't going to help you that much, if at all. There were some things to really kind of help with technique, but then you had to take those findings and apply them and be able to apply them. So when you are doing your training, all the extra work that you need to do, even if it's with an empty bar, doing 
hundreds and thousands of repetitions over and over and over again, trying to get as close to perfect as you could. And it was always something that you were pursuing was, was perfection. So getting as close to that as, as you possibly could. And for the future, I'm, I'm just hoping that we can get to a place where some of this technology and, and data uh, can in, in real time really start to help athletes understand themselves from a from an injury standpoint because really half the battle at least in weightlifting and I, I have to assume this is the same for most other sports half the battle or maybe 75 percent of the battle was just getting through a training cycle healthy and that you can go into a competition and take advantage of all the work that you've done so if we can find some ways to really identify injuries before they happen and or speed up the recovery from said injuries so that uh, once you get to the playing field, it's everybody that's there is at their best. And that's where competition is the most exciting to watch is when everybody is at their best, all on an equal playing field. And now it's just a matter of who's prepared better, who wants it more, and who's willing to kind of leave everything out there on the field of play in order to be successful. Uh, all right, we're going to have to take a short break here, but when we get back, we're going to get into some questions from our listeners and uh, just learn a little bit more about Wes. The foundation for every good health routine starts with a multivitamin mineral formula. But what multi-formula is right for your unique body and lifestyle needs? The team at Thorne has made it simple for you to find out. Just head over to thorne.com to take a multivitamin mineral quiz. Simply answer a few questions about your diet and lifestyle, and their medical experts will recommend an ideal multivitamin mineral formula for you. Treat your body to the health it deserves with Thorne's Foundational Health Solutions. Learn more by visiting thorne.com. That's T-H-O-R-N-E dot com. And we're back. All right, Wes, let's get into some questions from our audience. Sure. The first one is, what is Athletes Village like where everyone is the best in the world? Wow, yeah, that is... Uh... That is really cool because I can tell you that from my perspective, you know, even though I was a part of the Olympic team and by default, you are considered one of the best athletes in the world. But I know I never, I never saw myself like that. It never really dawned on me to include myself in that group until you're there in the village, until you're there at a, at an opening ceremony. So it is really cool because you know, you'll walk around and you see other athletes from, from more high, higher profile sports walking around. You'll see them in the dining hall, not only from the United States, but from, from other countries. So it's really something that you have to not let yourself uh, get overwhelmed with because it's really easy to do. You're talking about 10,500 athletes that are in the village. And as we've kind of gone along, there are some teams and some sports from a distraction standpoint that choose to stay in hotels outside of the village. But it really is this great, you know, harmonious place where everybody is, is there. Everyone's excited to be there. 
uh, you meet a lot of new friends and it's just a, a great environment, you know, to be in. And it is pretty cool to see a lot of these, uh, these kind of superstars that you've only seen on television, you know, walking around or, you know, eating at the table next to you. And in general, the athletes are always very respectful. So the village is supposed to be a safe haven. So they're not running up and asking people for autographs or for pictures or different things like that. Everybody is really respectful and understands that your job is there to have a competition and, and to go and compete to, to the best of your ability. And there will be opportunities for photographs and autographs and, and, and those sorts of things in a different setting. But the village itself is one that the athletes are very respectful of each other and they know they get inundated with those type of requests outside of the village. So it's, it's kind of that safe haven there and the athletes are all very respectful of one another. Now you mentioned you didn't consider yourself uh, one of the best in the world and you're humble to a fault, we know. But this next question speaks a little bit to that. One of our listeners wants to know, how many statues of you are there? I'm, I'm wondering which, which listener uh, put that question is. I can, I can almost guess. But the answer is two, and they are the same statue, one at the Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs and one in the center at, in Chula Vista, uh, California. So a grand total of two. And is there a West Barnett Lane? There is a, a West Barnett Way in, in my hometown of uh, St. Joseph, Missouri, right in front of the youth center that, uh, where, I, where, where it all started for me. So I've had a lot of you know, really great opportunities and, and, and great honors. And I think it pays to be from a, from a small town where when you do something extraordinary, it really gets a lot of focus. It really gets a lot of attention. And, uh, and, and people really take notice. So I've just been uh, been really blessed from that regard. So this kind of rolls into that. Uh, I think it's a great question, uh, and I want to know the answer. What does it mean to represent the United States in competition? Well, I'll tell you, to represent the United States, for me, there's no prouder moment. I mean, it's, it's, it's something where you are bringing your best uh, to the field of play that day, and you are, you are taking on you know, your competitors from around the world to see who is going to be best that day. Uh, but when you think about uh, the United States and, and what a great country we have and, and how fortunate and blessed we are to, to live here, the honor of having that, that USA on your chest when you go out to, uh, to a competition is, is like nothing else. It's really, it's really difficult to describe the, the level of, of pride you know, that you have and, and the enormous opportunity to go out there and, and represent your country on the field of play. And, and, and there's a lot of pressure, but I, I always like to say that pressure is a, is a privilege. I mean, if you weren't in the situation that you were in, there would be no pressure. So it's a privilege to, to be in those instances where uh, you have the opportunity to, to, to wear the USA, to wear the flag. And that's something for me anyways, that was always in the back of my mind whenever I went out there, because I not only wanted to make myself and my coaches and my, and my family proud, uh, you really want to make your country proud as well. Well, I think we could say you've done a great job of, of making us all proud. I'm going to combine two questions here. So one of our listeners asked, or two of our listeners asked, what's your favorite city you've ever competed in? And what's the best meal you've eaten at a competition? Gosh, the, the cities are, are fantastic, all, all for different reasons. I mean, one of the things that I kick myself for now is all the countries that I've been to that I, 
that I didn't take the time to stay afterwards and have a little bit of a vacation after the competition was over and really gain a, uh, a, a deeper level of perspective and appreciation for the culture um, in the countries uh, that I were at, so that I was in. So for me, these countries, they represent things for different reasons. Obviously, Barcelona was a, was a great experience for me, and that was, that was my first Olympics. Thailand, uh, we were in Chiang Mai for the 97 World Weightlifting Championships, where I won the first medals for a, uh, for a U.S. man in almost three decades. So that was a very special place for me. Atlanta, even being able to compete in the Olympic Games in your home country, where you're in a setting where the audience is actually all in favor of you. I mean, that, that doesn't happen in other parts of the world that you go to. But I'd say Australia is another great one. But I, I would say that one of my favorite countries that I've been to, my top two, I loved Thailand and Istanbul was another one of my favorites, just, you know, the, the cultural piece and, and just the time that I had there and the way that the people interacted with you. And I would be remiss to say Athens. Athens was another one where the, uh, the people were so proud to have the games back in their country uh, in 2004. And I was there as, a, as an administrator, but to see the pride, you know, that the people had, it was, it was just really heartwarming. It's always fun to see really in all the countries that you go to the pride that the uh, that the countrymen have that yeah the games are are here in my country and they they're incredibly proud to be hosting the world one of my favorite meals I, i'd say I'd, I'd go back to athens you go down to the plaka and you know every day you can get the euros and just the terrific food there but i remember going to a seafood restaurant once and the people are out front you know trying to coax you to come come into their restaurant and I remember I asked the guy who was out there trying to convince people to come in, is the food good? And he says, I tell you what, if you don't like it, you don't pay. And anybody that knows me and my appetite, that was just a, uh, you know, a, a challenge that I, I could not refuse. So we go in and there's about eight of us there. And it was, it was like I said, it's a seafood restaurant. And I'd never had like grilled octopus and, and things like that. So you know, they just grill up all of this seafood and it comes to the table and I'm looking at this and I'm like, all right, well, you know, he told me if I don't like it, I don't have to pay. And I tell you what, uh, I ate and I ate and I ate and I ate and um, it was, it was probably one of the best meals, uh, you know, that I, that I ever had. So, you know, I ended up paying, emptying out, uh, you know, every, every dollar that I had in, in my pocket because it was it was quite expensive, but well worth it. It's unbelievable. And yeah, your appetite does have does have a reputation. So that means a lot. <laughs> this one's a little more serious. Do athletes know when somebody is using PEDs? I think for the most part, the answer is yes, because you have to remember the athletes spend a lot of time together and a lot of years together. So you're watching one person perform a certain way one day, a year later, you know, they're performing at an entirely different level, which, okay, it's not unheard of uh, to kind of make gains and, and, to, and to progress, but there are some things that are just, you know, so out of bounds and so outside the realm of probability that you just kind of, you know, you have to scratch your head. At the same time, it's unfair to point fingers or, or cast 
suspicions because you don't know 100%. And I would even use myself as an example. When, when I first joined the Olympic Training Center uh, resident program, again, I, I went from, from training four times a week, once a day, to six times a week, twice a day. So my performance skyrocketed in year one, in year two. I mean, I was going like gangbusters. And I know there were people around the country in the United States looking at me saying, oh my gosh, what are they doing out there? Uh, they must be doing something. And on one hand, it's hurtful to hear those things. On the other hand, when you know you're 100% clean, it's a little bit of source of pride to say, well, if I'm performing at that level and people think that I'm doing so well that I must be taking drugs, then I'm doing something right. But the reality is you really don't know. You, you have suspicions and there are things that performances that happen that really make those suspicions pretty legitimate. But I always stop short of trying to call anybody out or casting dispersions or, or, or making accusations just because you don't know 100%, which is why I've always been a staunch advocate for drug testing, not at competitions where athletes can easily pass a test, but you do it out of competition, randomly, knock on people's door when they don't expect you to be there and say, I'm here for a drug test. So that was one of the things in the resident program. It was actually an initiative that I put forth to the board of directors of US weightlifting. I said, look, if we're going to get all of these services and resources from you, you better be sure that we're not going to go on the international stage and embarrass you. They're like, well, what do you want to do? I said, we should have a random unannounced test every month, every month, because you sought us right here in town and just have them come over. They know when we train, they know where our gym's at. We all live in the dormitories. It'd be very easy to do. So we had a program where every month, and it could be the first of the month, the middle of the month, uh, the end of the month, and then turn around and, and the first of the next month, you just never knew, but they would come walk into the training hall. I need you, 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 and you. We're going to go back here and, and, and do a test. Or the worst case scenario, they come knocking at your door, usually at about six o'clock in the morning, which was never fun, but they wanted to catch you right before you got up and used the restroom from waking up. So they would come very early in the morning. So really the way to do it, out of competition, unannounced, random drug testing, that's the way that you're going to level the playing field. All right. So we know you don't take performance enhancing drugs, but you do take supplements. What are your favorite products from Thorne? Boy, you, you name them. I mean, there are so many. You know, I am in this position where I'm getting a little older, but I still like to compete. I still like to work out and train. So I take a, a variety of products that support my training and, and, and my recovery from an athletic side. Then, of course, I want to try to, uh, to live forever. So uh, I try to take uh, all of the healthy aging products that Thorne has to offer so that I can have the best of both worlds. I, I really enjoy the, uh, the Niacel. I enjoy the Memoractive, the vitamin D. Mentioned my appetite earlier. I love the Biogest. There's just so many products out there. But the probiotics are also killer and uh, the multivitamins, always fantastic. But when I'm out on, on the road, on my bike cycling, the catalyte, the, the amino complex, the whey protein, those things that kind of help me recover afterwards, those are great. So 
those are just a few of my favorites. And probably high up there on the list is one uh, Crucera, which is the one capsule is the equivalent of eating two cups of cooked broccoli. So for those that, and I, I actually like broccoli, but for those who aren't getting enough of those green vegetables, especially, you know, the broccoli, that's an easy way to kind of supplement your diet to make sure you're getting all the nutrients that you need. Yeah, for sure. I always say you don't have to be an Olympian to, to fuel and recover like one. So uh, we have we have time for one more question. I think it's a fun one to end on. Do you have any behind the scenes stories from the Olympics? Boy, there's a, there's a ton of them. Some of them, you know, I took a blood oath that they could never leave, almost kind of like what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. It is a, um, you know, we usually show up to the games with a, with a very dynamic group of people. But some of the things that, that happen behind the scenes that people don't understand or realize, in a lot of instances, what we try to do is we try to bring like a mini training center to whatever country that we're, that we're going to. Uh, so the athletes can train when they want to. I don't know if people understand that when you're at a games and let's say you uh, are in the sport of archery, well, there's one venue and there's usually a training venue that's either with the competition venue or, or they're separated, but you get put on a schedule so that you train when the organizers give you a slot to train. So today it may be eight in the morning, tomorrow it's at noon, the next day it's at four o'clock, the next day it's at 11 a.m. So it's it's all over the place. And in reality, your competition every day is at one o'clock. So what we do is we try to have a, a training facility that we secure and we set up so that if you're on the archery team and you compete at one o'clock every day, you come to our facility where you don't have to compete for time against all the other countries and you train whenever you want to, as many times as you want to, as long as you want to. So we believe that that gives us a competitive advantage. Now, some of the other countries that have the resources to do that, they try to model what we're doing. So now it becomes almost like this arms race, who can get to the country first, who can secure the best facility first, who can get the contract signed first, et cetera. Now we bring a lot of clout. so. Many organizations love hosting and love being able to brag about the fact that we hosted the United States team at our facility during the Olympic Games. Others, it's really transactional for them. They come in, they pay, and they use your facility and, and they leave. But one of the special things that we do and, and, and why I think we get special consideration is because of the community programs that we do when we're on the ground there. So in London, for example, I remember going to several different schools where I would go in and I would talk about the Olympic values, the Olympic ideals, talk about the Olympic games, talk about sport, talk about health. And I don't think a lot of the other countries, well, I'm almost certain none of the other countries do that. And that's that's really what gives us our, our competitive advantage from the standpoint of being able to get the places secured that we want to because they know that we're not dropping in, writing them a check, and then pulling up stakes when the games are over. But we want to have a lasting impact on the community, on the people in the community, and not just be seen as, okay, you know, the United States, they came in, they used up all the resources, and, and, and then they left. That's one of the more kind of special things that we do behind the scenes at a games 
that nobody even realizes the things that are out in the community where we're interacting, we're engaging, we're inviting the community sometimes into our facilities to kind of see how things operate. And, um, you know, you'd be surprised at how far a t-shirt, a hat, or a pin go in terms of, you know, making a lifelong friend and getting favors at the games that they won't do for anybody else. So it again goes back, Joel, to what we talked about earlier about being good people, good citizens, and really representing yourself and your country in a in a very special way. So that's one of the more meaningful behind the scenes things that I really like to talk about. All right, Wes, thanks. It's been great. It's all the time we have. You know, your wealth of information, we'd love to have you back on. There's so much we can talk about. In the meantime, anyone looking for more information on sports performance and, and how Thorne interacts with athletes, you can go to thorne.com. And stay tuned to our uh, social media channels because we're going to have some some great content around the Olympics and, and some of the athletes we support. So that's all the time we have today. That was Thorne Vice President and Olympian Wes Barnett. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks, Joel. Thanks for listening to the Thorne Podcast Performance Edition. Make sure to never miss an episode by subscribing to the show on your podcast app of choice. You can also learn more about the topics we discussed by visiting thorn.com and checking out the latest news, videos, and stories on Thorn's Take 5 Daily Blog. For this performance edition of the Thorn Podcast, I'm Joel Totoro, reminding everyone to stay active and stay hydrated.